Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Good afternoon and welcome to Soft Rep Radio. I'm Soft Rep Editor in Chief Sean Spoons. I'm filling in for Steve Balistrieri today, who is uh, recovering from minor surgery, so he's going to be just fine. Don't worry about him. Uh, today, our guest is Taylor Gregan, and Taylor is a former aviation rescue swimmer, and he's made a documentary called Hell or High Water, which is about his post-military service journey from PSD to recovering and healing. It's um, it's a really fascinating story, much like Homer's um, Homer's epic poem, the the Odyssey, about the the king of of Ithaca. He was the uh, he was Odysseus was yep. the king of Ithaca, and he made a journey that took I think about a year, coming back from um, the siege of Troy, and uh, the journey that uh, Eric and his I'm sorry Taylor and his shipmates made took him from Pensacola, Florida, all the way to Cape Horn on the southern tip. Of South America, one of the most treacherous places for mariners in the entire world. It's the reason they built the Panama Canal, was because so many people and ships were lost trying to sail Cape Horn. I'm particularly happy to be doing this interview today with Taylor uh, because I was an aviation rescue air crewman myself. So to, to meet another one, to talk to another one is such a rare thing. There's so few of us uh, in the Navy, you almost never see another one. So Taylor, welcome to Software Radio. We're very happy to have you. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool indeed. It is rare. Small community. So, 
Right. We're like unicorns. It's like you get another <laughs> one. You go, you are a SAR swimmer? No kidding. And I guess I think we talked when we were talking before. So I've only ever met one other guy in like 25 years that was a rescue swimmer like, like you and I were. And it was like, a, oh, my God. And kind of funny thing. Uh, I asked him. He was with an HSC squadron like you were, which is a sea control squadron. For those of you who are uninitiated, the sea control squadrons are the almost the dedicated combat search and rescue squadrons in the Navy. And that is differentiated from the HSL squadrons, which tend to do more any submarine warfare off of uh, frigates and, and destroyers. And when I told him I was an HSL guy, he goes, oh, you must have got good grades in A school. <laughs> which is <laughs> 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 kind of true, because if you were like, didn't get good grades in school. You ended up with the H three squadron, you know, the the HS squadrons and stuff. So it was, you had to pick, you had to pick your orders based on your class standing. And if you don't know this, our publisher Brandon Webb, who is a Navy SEAL, he started as a as a uh, aviation rescue swimmer as well, and he was in oh, HS nice. squadrons. He was on the Kitty Hawk, and um, he was on the Abe Lincoln, and then went over to the Navy SEALs. Used to be that. The number one rating for guys to transition over to SEAL teams was search and rescue guys. They, they always are looking for some other thing. So uh, let's talk a bit about your background. You grew up in you grew up in um, East Texas, Galveston Bay area. Moved around a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. You you were, you were born when? How old are you now? Yeah, I'm 29. And 29. Okay. So my grandparents had a place in Galveston. We'd go stay with them. Uh, my dad, he lived in Dickinson, which is where I live now. And then we'd live, we lived in, in Huntsville and then a little town called Malakoff out in East Texas. And then uh, family had some land out in San Angelo. We got to, and now all my, most all of my family lives out in San Antonio. Um, and that's where I lived whenever I got out of the Navy. It was in San Antonio before I went to Pensacola. I've been out that way. Beautiful town, San Antonio. I spent a little time on a ranch out in Bandera, which is, you know, out even further west of you in that part of the hill country. It's gorgeous there. Beautiful uh, land, you, yeah. You decided you wanted to be a you decided you wanted to be a swimmer. You, you, you wanted to join a swim team. The documentary talks a little bit about that. You uh you walked down there full of piss and vinegar. I'm gonna just take yeah. over this pool and and got a and got a yeah. rude awakening. Tell us about that. Yeah, I showed up to the swim tryouts. That was when we lived in College Station. Um, and I showed up to their, their high school swim team tryouts wearing swim trunks, you know. That's how that's how out of place I was. Uh, so that day that coach the coach cut me. Um, you know, he was like, You're just not good enough, man. Um, but he told me I'd go swim with the club team, and that's what I ended up doing. Uh, spent a semester swimming with all the eight-year-olds there until I could hold myself above the water enough to finish practice. And yeah, got, it's, it's a real discipline. It beats you up. You it's, morning, yeah. morning tw- practices twice a day before school, after school. You spend something like four or five hours in the water. It's funny because I swam too. I, I was an AAU swimmer in Miami growing up. And then you didn't just, like, get on the team. You, like, you were the team captain. You were all American. You broke county records and all this stuff. And I mean, you were sort of like a the come from behind kid. Yeah, had a good had a good team. It was one of those things. You had a lot of good people around you, and we definitely did. Our team was pretty awesome. We all kind of pushed each other. So, give a shout out here to your high school alumni and your and your high school swim team. I'm sure they're probably still talking about you now. So, yeah, what was our, the name of the high school? What was the name of the team? This is A&M Consolidated High School in College Station, Texas. And, uh, yeah, our coach, he, he's, he's in the film, and I think he says some pretty cool stuff about that time together. Yeah. He's a good dude. He's awesome. We're still friends today. So you graduated from high school in what year? In 2010, and then joined the Navy right after that. Did you go to a delayed entry program? Did you have to wait, or did you go right in? I was in debt, the debt program for, I think, four months. Um, yeah, that's, because that AW SAR community is so small, there's almost always a wait to get in. They have to like put you in the pipeline. But there's a lot of attrition. The the Navy recruiting commercials always show a guy jumping out of a helicopter into the water. But the fact is, the attrition rate is murderous in the pipeline for training. It's like 18 months to two years of training before you actually reach an operational squadron. And they might lose 80 to 90 percent of the people who sign up because there's just so many places where you get dropped. It's medical. Water goes up your nose and you can't help it or you freak out in the altitude chamber or you lose your mind in the helo dunker or academics. You, you can't you can't cut the academics. So 
spend two years just going from step to step, just trying to stay in the program. And, and they don't want you. They make it very clear that they don't want you. Go, leave, we yeah. don't need you. So you have, to, you have to beg to stay. You have to earn it every day. They, they act like you leaving is no big deal. The Navy is not going to go out of business because you flunked out of SAR school. So, so you probably remember the graduating class you, you went to SAR school with was probably a third to half of the guys that, that ended up that ended yeah. up starting. So my original class to start with, we started with 33 people, and we graduated with three of those, so four total, including me, um, that yeah. started together. And then we had a couple guys that like had fractures or failed, um, rolled back into our class that graduated with us, but we had, yeah, it was four of us from our original class made it all the way through. You know, it's funny even going back, because I went through in the, it was August 83, I went through SAR school at um, HS1 Jacksonville, and they run it now out of Pensacola, but... Injuries were very common. A lot of guys went out, mm-hmm. went out with, with broken, bad joints, elbows, wrists, knees. Stress fractures. That was a lot of those. Yeah, especially knees. Yeah, they, I think they roll you out now for like shin splints, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I ran I ran through shin splints the whole time. We did, That was like not a thing. Shin splints was not a thing. They were like, just get over it. You know, take oh. some aspirin. You know, they were just like, you got to deal with it. Yeah, I did a lot of boot camp, and every time I did it, you know, like, you do a lot of running in SAR school. At least do a lot of running in SAR school. It's a different program um, than, say, Navy SEALs. You know, tend to build guys up really big. SAR school is really about endurance. It's about having a body that can go and go and go and go and go. Not not being able to lift three hundred pounds. It's it's more about being able to lift hundred pounds three hundred times. So they they really they told us don't lift weights, run, swim. Uh, be an endurance athlete. And when you get out, you're in phenomenal shape. I mean, you're just like, you did yeah. miracle things. Busting a mile in under six, right? Without even really breaking a sweat. Do a mile swim and it's a mild inconvenience. You know, like go back to work the rest of your day and, you know, finish out your day at the squadron. So kind of take it for granted what you what you do. So you go to uh, Air, Cruise, Air Cruise, go to boot camp in Great Lakes, right? Did you get in the summertime? Did you get a winter? Did you get a winter call for that? Oh, dude, no. I was there in Chicago in the winter, and uh, they got hit by this. They called it a ten-year, the ten-year snowstorm, and we were out shoveling snow until like, three <laughs> in the morning, and it was piling up over us before we could shovel it all out. And I was like, that was the moment when I realized I don't ever want to live in the north. Did they, still do, <laughs> did they still do the fire drills at three in the morning and make you run outside in the cold with just a blanket on? Call out all eighty names standing there shivering in your skivvies in the cold. They used to do that to us. We didn't have to do that. No, um, thank God. Got, yeah, no, we didn't. Thank God. That's right. Thank God. <laughs> so I think the worst part of boot camp was the fire drills at three in the morning in the cold weather, standing there in your skivvies with a blanket while they call off all the names i'm like i hope we don't have a lot of long names in the unit you know because and if one guy missed it missed the call they'd start over from the beginning again so if one guy didn't didn't answer up they'd start from the very beginning but all right so then on a bus um on a bus probably or a plane they fly you down to pensacola yeah. for flew down to pensacola and then um went through beautiful, Air School. beautiful base oh yeah it's awesome beautiful. It's one best best challenge in the navy it used to be Still is that way. Yeah, Pensacola did you good. They still do. Yeah, they still do. Um, so air crewman candidate school is is all about the environmental stuff to make you an air crewman. It's altitude um, chamber training. It's parachute landing training. It's injection seat training. Yeah, helo dunker. Deep. Yeah, helo dunker. Deep water environmental survival training. You're doing mile swims, all dressed out in your flight gear and everything. Steel toed boots. Those yeah. were those were murder. And you spent a lot of time in Pensacola Bay. Um, they used to spend a lot of time in Pensacola Bay. And yeah, you took up sailing there while you were up where you, oh, you went to your San Diego. That's right, um, yeah. So aircrew school, and then you go to rescue swimmer school, and then um, and then you go to your A school, and that's all in Pensacola. And once you finish your A school, you go to San Diego. And that's when you learn to be a rescue swimmer in a helicopter. So you spent about a year then in Pensacola, if you put it all together, didn't you? Yep, a little over a year and then just under a year in San Diego to finish the training. And then the replacement, yeah, earn your wings, right? Get your gold wings, get eight tops qualified? Uh, that changed like just before I got out there. So you used to get your wings. Now, now it's you get your wings when you get out to your squadron and you go through their utility crewman um, oh. syllabus. Yeah. So I didn't get my wings until after my first deployment. 
it, it used to take a while because you get there and you think, okay, here I am. I'm at the squad. And then you're like, no, now you got to earn your wings. You got to qualify as a plane captain. You got to do it. You're back yeah. to being a nobody again. So you're always starting from zero every place you go. Which um, I think is fair because I didn't know anything when I first got out to my squadron. I didn't, no. There's no way I should have worn wings then, no. Did you have fun in the helo dunker? Yeah, the helo dunker's a blast, man. Uh, we don't just kind of sit back and let people knock each other out as they're kicking to get out. It's, it's always kind of funny. So the helo dunker is a big um, appliance that seats six to eight people. It's configured like a helicopter, and it's basically sitting above a pool. And they strap you in full flight gear, four-point restraints, and they drop it in the water, and they rotate it upside down, and they sink it. And then you have to basically undo your harness and everything and either exit out the window or exit and mass out the door. Um, we used to say you could really tell the sea dogs that in the helo dunkers, the guys who were comfortable in the water, they were fine. But but the guys who were kind of new to it, you could see the wide-eyed stares. There was a terror in their eyes. You can strap me in a chair and drown me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they have divers that are there to kind of, you know, keep you safe but some guys balked I'm not doing it they freak out then you have to do it blindfolded three times you have to do it with blacked out speedo goggles so I'm glad they still do that training because it saves your life it really does that saves good. your life so um, you got some airtime. you go out to um, you go out to San Diego you arrive at the squadron and they're going to deploy to land bases and to um, amphibious landing vessels and stuff like that um, so when I was in San Diego, that was just when I was at the RAG, uh, HSC-3. And once I finished that, I was deployed to HSC-25, and that's in Guam. And once I got there, from there, I deployed to uh, the ships, and and, uh, and then we'd do Station SAR there in Guam. Guam's a very nice place. It's a beautiful island. Used to be used to have a reputation for being kind of sharky in the water. Does it still have that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a lot of sharks in Guam. So we'd fly over the beach all the time and you'd just see sharks swimming right in between people regularly. I mean, yeah. every sing- there was never a day where you don't see sharks swimming in between people. I have no idea. Yeah, you have a different sense of the ocean after being a rescue recruitment for a while, watching the sharks swim that close to bathers. You, you have a different view about going to the beach and going out into the water much yeah. more than waist height. You're like, out there, there are sharks every day. Yeah, so- San Diego too. We'd fly over uh, Imperial Beach down there and just see sharks every time <laughs> they got seals in the water they got seals like in san uh, diego not in not in guam no so that means you have great whites if they have seals that's oh that's they, yeah they there's eat. a lot of great whites in san diego for sure that's cold water too man san diego's the pacific's cold everywhere it's freezing um so the uh, air rescue responsibilities you guys were, were you guys were primary search and rescue um responders in in guam was the coast guard there as well yeah, so um, there was a Coast Guard base, but they didn't have a helicopter asset. So our main duty when we were in Guam was uh, search and rescue. So we'd work with we'd work with the Coast Guard and we'd work with Guam Fire Rescue, um, and we we just stand SAR, we stand SAR rotations, um, twenty four hours. How many hours go as a detachment? How many birds did they send out? To two, three? In Guam, man, I, Nine, ten helicopters out there in Guam. Oh, you went out there as a squadron then. Okay. Yeah, I was stationed. Yeah, I was there for a little over four years. And then from Guam, we'd get, if we weren't on deployment and just in Guam, our main duty was SAR, SAR duty and training for deployment. And so when we got deployed, we'd go out with um, three, two or three helicopters, depending on what ship we were on. Um, My first deployment was on the Bonham Richard, who caught fire in San Diego. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's like a, she's a total write-off now. They're they're going to. Uh, she is. Just, she's down. She's down here in Texas now, man. They're they're taking her part um, down right on the border. There's a report out about that. There was a whole just a mess of failures that go all the way up to the front office, right down to like the E two E three guys that were manning the ship. It was just a disaster. But well, I mean, you could get a piece of her now if you want. You could go over there and say, "Hey, like, I sailed on this ship. I'd like a chunk of it." I did try. I contacted the the contractor that um, is running, taking her part down there, and he said we've gotten a lot of these requests, and we can't, we just can't let people come in and, and see her again. So, all right. He did uh, say that they're gonna melt down a bunch of the steel and make challenge coins. So. Okay. 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 That's pretty cool. I thought so. That you, was cool did you say you spent four years in Guam? That's really something. 
Yeah. That's not bad duty, actually, Guam. I mean, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, it's not bad for like six months, and then you're oh. on an island that's 20 miles long for four years. <laughs> mm. Did you get back stateside very often, every six months or so? Get, get no. a week or two and come out? You just I didn't. didn't. Uh, plane tickets were like 2300 bucks, 1800 bucks to get back, and uh, that, was, that was a lot more money than I could afford. Um, what about Space but, A? What about Space A? I could never rely on Space A out there, man. Uh, just, I mean, Guam just doesn't have resources you do back in the States, so it's really 18, hard to get back. And, 1800 is a, big, is a big amount of money. That's a, that's a yeah, big chunk. Yeah. Uh, how many rescues did you end up doing in Guam? In the documentary, you talk about... Um, it's a different kind of rescue than than the normal aviation rescue sort of profile, which would be to cover a pilot um, who's ejected or a service member's gone over overboard. Um, you're doing rescues of civilians, which would be boats and probably some suicide attempts. Sometimes some people just swim out to sea. Sometimes and want to end it all. Um, yeah, was it was it pretty busy out there as a rescue equipment? Yeah, it was, it was extremely busy. Um, we'd get yeah. Between 60 and 80 calls, rescues a year. And oh, then medevac, medevacs, we'd have at least one a week, at least, because um, the other islands in the Marianas Islands, they don't have any kind of medical facilities. Guam was the only major hospital in the area, so if somebody got seriously hurt on, like, Saipan, uh, we'd have to fly out to Rota, we'd have to fly out there and pick them up and stabilize them on the way to the hospital uh, back in Guam. That was a lot of call- that was a lot of calls. I had a lot of medevacs out there, and then I had um, I had six good rescues in Guam, and the three of them were two of them were hikers who fell off a cliff in Guam. And I'd have a I'd have a couple more. That's what I was thinking about. I have a couple more calls like that, but people wouldn't get in the helicopter. So, if, so like the family would call and they were lost for a day, we'd go out there and find them and then they wouldn't want to get rescued. They'd they want to be found. They want to yeah. be found. Yeah. So what do you do in a situation like that? You just like, dude, okay, I dude. Had, yeah, I didn't um, know how, I didn't know how it worked at all. Um, I'd try and tell them like, dude, you're clearly going to die. Um, dehydrated. You haven't had any food in a couple of days now. You've been sweating. It's Guam. It's a, it's a tropical jungle, you know? No, I can't, I can't go back. Um, so you call the pilots back in the helo, and they're like, hey, this guy's not coming in. And like, well, we can't force him. So they just pick me back up on the on the wire. I mean, the SMT. The, Give him a couple water bottles. Down. Give him a couple water bottles and say good Yeah, luck. we would. We left him. I actually left one guy with our camel back. I haven't gotten that back. <laughs> he still has it. Um, yeah, but the other two I had um, on land, they fell off hiking on Mount Lam Lam out there. Those are pretty. Those are pretty common land rescues. People would hike and fall off a cliff and break their legs or something. We had to go get them. That's and a pretty. Then, that's a pretty gnarly injury too. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of pain and blood and lots of things can happen and they really bash themselves up. Shock. Um, did you lose anybody? No, I did have two recovery missions though, um, where they were already dead by the time I got there. Um, but the you know the saying is we're not we're not corners we can't we can't pronounce people dead so um, you have to try and do everything you can until you get to the hospital. But yeah, that's they were that's, that's tough. Definitely, you go out there hoping to rescue someone alive. You get out there and you find them gone. That's that's um, that's a bit heartbreaking. It was indeed. How did when did you get out? Oh, uh, the other thing. Wait, I'm going to go back to this. You know, fact of life of, of being a rescue crewman is. We lose people in operational accidents. The Roosevelt just lost a full, almost a full crew of guys. One one crewman survived; the other five were drowned. Um, that it's such a small community. When you lose people, you end up knowing them or somebody knew them um, while you were in. Did that happen much? We had a bunch of crashes while I was in, with like eleven mishaps in like four years. Um, did you did you have those kinds of experiences as well? Yeah, um, the big one with the Marines that crashed off of Hawaii, that, that kind of hit us all whenever I was out there. Um, and then, I mean, recently, the one that just crashed off of San Diego uh, with eight that went down. I mean, yeah. we all knew them. Um, yeah, every time, like you said, it's a super small community. Every time every time something like that happens, you definitely know someone or went through training with them at some point or another. And it's easy to see yourself in that in that same spot. Like you always feel like you've rolled the dice every time you go up in the aircraft. You think, I right, didn't come up snake eyes today, but 
it could come up snake eyes in the afternoon you're always Dude. waiting waiting your turn uh, you know it, you're waiting it, your turn that's the best way to describe it. it really is a roll of the dice dude it's fun like you said every time you see like that happen you have been in that scenario before where that could have happened to you and you're like thank god like it's just pure luck that that we didn't crash um yeah. over and over again i think that's the kind of concept yeah, yeah we, had a fire, we had a fire in the aircraft one time come back at night and we had an electrical fire in the panel and lost the lights interior and that was a that, when you smell things burning in an aircraft, that's a very disconcerting thing. And you just have to sit there, right? You get the fire extinguisher out. You're waiting for the flames to blow and things to shut down. And we're 100 miles from the ship. And we're like, God, I was like getting into my gear. I was like, I was getting into my gear. I told the pilots, I'm going to get my wetsuit on in case we have to yeah. go in the water. And um, I'll have the rafts and I'll, I'll try and get you guys out. And we'll get our strobes and our radios up and... You know, the ship will be a couple of hours, but they'll get to us and, you know, just just relax. We'll be fine, sir. But I'm going to put on my I'm going to put on my wet gear anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. so start just, opening up doors so you can get out. Yeah. Oh, doing all that, doing all that, all that ditch preparation. We're doing, you know, ditch landing checklist and everything. And and then um, the ship turned the lights on for us. And we're like, thank God we're going to get back on deck. And the thing about crashes is they're usually very simple things. They're not like things you could predict they, they end up being these small it takes a months to figure out what it was and when they do you go that's what brought down the helicopter right jeez you know, it doesn't end up being a big thing it ends up being something relatively minor and you think it took this whole aircraft down so um and you yeah, do you, you feel it every uh every major incident is a result of swiss cheese effect where it's a four small things coming in line to cause the problem it's not one major thing yeah and you just sit there in the aircraft and have to like wait for it to happen or not happen but it's always there in your head you always feel great when you get back on the deck you know that you know that feeling when the rotors turn down and all you hear is just the whine of the headphones yeah. it's like dead silent you have to take kind of a minute to adjust because you're out of that Thank whole yeah thing of noise and vibration and all of that and it's like dead quiet except just for a little feedback in the in the headphones of your helmet because i still remember that feeling it's like it's always like 30 seconds or so where you just kind of sit there and, and we take it all in yeah we did it we're not dead today good job sir you didn't that's kill a, us all <laughs> that's a concept i had a hard time explaining when i got back it's like flying a helicopter is trying to kill you every time you fly and it's and you always think you're gonna die and it's different because it's not like, oh, I'm going to die right now. It's like you have a solid 40 minutes to an hour thinking about how you're going to die. That fucks right. with you on another right. level. Imagine just right. thinking for an hour straight. I'm dead. I'm going to die. I have a long time to think about that. that that'll mess you up, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's like getting a death sentence and a reprieve every day, right? The governor calls and tells you you don't have to, you know, not going to electrocute you. But you're right because all the losses tend to be at takeoffs and landings. It's Once you're in the air... Usually you're okay. It's the landings and the takeoffs where it all seems to go bad, and and it goes bad very quickly. Um, I used to just tell myself, please just don't let me get knocked out. Please let me be conscious. I can get out. All right. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm awake, I can get out. And um, But, yeah, you're right because you, in bad weather on the ship, you're going to be taken off, and you're like, okay, i got to be sweating this. The landings and the takeoffs going to be okay. Are we minimals on the weather? Are we okay on the weather? The wind, and you know, we're gonna be all right. You're gonna be sleep, you know. And then you're coming back, bad weather, same thing at night, decks pitching, and you're sweating that for 40 minutes. How's the landing gonna be? Are we gonna be all right? Are we gonna do it? Right. Yeah, it's a it's a big relief when you finally get on the deck and you're like, Phew. and then it's like, oh, I'm on the flight schedule again for the morning. Oh, I'm I know. Up again. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Try Yeah, try and go and get four hours of sleep after that, and then go fly again. Yeah, it's like sticking your head in the mouth of a lion and they're like, okay, see you tomorrow. Bright and early, we'll be doing this all over again. Well, I'm just getting over surviving the last one and we got to like go right back down. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, you become inured to certain risks that after you get out, you end engage in risky behaviors because I think a lot of times we have a hard time identifying real risk. Mm -hmm. And um, motorcycles, you know, um, drinking more alcohol than we should. Uh, driving our cars too fast, getting into some like extreme sports and stuff. I mean, we're we're looking. We find a certain sense of meaning in in living in that envelope of danger, and 
it's almost like you get hooked on it. It takes a while to get over it. It does. It takes a while. And it, it took a while for you when you got out. You, you left the uh, you left the Navy. You decided not to reenlist. So yeah. tell me what tell me what shaped your thinking on that. Uh, yeah, one one and done for me. Um, there's a couple couple two of the biggest factors that made that decision for me was one, my back was shot, dude. Um, my back was done by the time I got out. So two of those rescues I had were pretty big tomorrow guys. And you're oh. carrying them in a litter bent over in the back of a helicopter and that just dude, I felt it as soon as I picked them up. I was like, My back's fucked now. So right. I don't know if we can do that with this audience, but um you could do my it. back yeah, my back was screwed. Um it hurt. It still hurts today. Um and I was like, I can't do another tour flying in these things. And then two was um Wom was was not fun, man. I think I was out there with a lot of good guys. A lot of the swimmers were good, but our command was terrible. We had a really terrible command, uh, I guess, for context. One time I put in for leave, it was denied 11 times. I never got to go on leave. I still have all of those 11 denials um, just because they would say we didn't have the manning. We were undermanned out there. So you didn't get to take leave out there, man. And that's... Oh, wow. Yeah, I've talked about that. When we do these screenings, I brought that up. People are like, no, you're, you're, you're supposed to be required to let people take leave. I'm like... I don't know what to tell you, dude. When you're that far away from the seawall, when you're at, you have a CO that can just run with whatever he wants. You're not taking leave. If he needs you there, you're not leaving. And I, I took leave twice the whole time I was out there. Um, and that's not for not putting it in. So I was, I was pretty burnt out. It's burnt out in that command and uh, in my body. They wouldn't even give you a leave on done. the base. They wouldn't even give you a two-week break on the base. You couldn't just like check into a hotel. And, and take two weeks to sun yourself on the beach and spearfish. They, they wouldn't they wouldn't grant leave. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. It could be just because you're under the op tempo of war. So they're like, hey, we got sea control squadrons in, in Afghanistan doing stuff, and we got to put out just as hard. And right. But but it's also I think about cuts to the navy, cuts to personnel, cuts to equipment. Um, they're short yeah. of people. They're short of people. That sucks, man, because from what I can tell of you, I think you're a great guy, and the Navy should have done some more things to keep you around. They, they do burn guys out. So well, that's what, yeah, that's what we're trying to fix now is uh, make sure guys don't get burnt out. We keep assets in the military, you know, keep them healthy. Was there, was there a sense of things, too, where you kind of said to yourself, okay, I proved to myself what I wanted to prove to myself by coming here? Maybe not in that respect. I mean, I saw what it was about, and I felt like I did my time. It was more along the lines. Like I didn't. I feel like I didn't need to. I didn't need to do anything else. You were telling me earlier that you learned. Uh, you learned to sail in San Diego by taking boats out on the recreation side of the base. It was a couple bucks an hour for to go out in a sailboat. Yeah. Sailing helped. Did, did sailing help you? And did you do a little of that in Guam too? Was it a for sure? Yeah, I learned to sail to in San Diego. The uh, the MWR program, you can rent boats super cheap, and they teach you to sail. You can do that with the buddies on the weekends. And then um, when I got to Guam, I'd still do that. Um, and then those two times I took leave, um, I went to Thailand and then Australia, and I'd sail as much as I could when I was out there. Uh, and then when we were stationed in Japan, so before we go on deployments, we live in Japan. We were stationed in Iwakuni at the Marine Corps Air Station down there. Um, I'd sail out of there quite a bit, which is beautiful, man. I didn't know Japan had such beautiful islands out there. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Um, they've had a lot of time to rebuild them since uh, since the war. <clears throat> um, when uh, you got out of the Navy, what year was that? 2016, December of 2016. Okay. So 2016, and that would have put you, gosh, you were 22, 23 years old then, right? Mm -hmm. You come back to Texas, back to the home country? Yep, back to the motherland. Um, yeah, and then um, about two two months out, um, I, I started noticing my body was 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 weird, man. Uh, so whenever I was in, I never had any of these issues, um, and I always felt like I could keep my mind and my body compartmentalized. I mean, you flew, you'd have that saying all the time: compartmentalize everything going on around you, what you did the day before, so you can focus on your flight. And then I think when I got out, it finally all kind of caught up to me. And that hit me at about the two-month mark. Um, I would be sitting around not doing anything at all, and nobody would be around me. I wouldn't be in a store or be at the house or driving or something. 
and for no reason at all, adrenaline would just start running through my body, and and I didn't I didn't know why. Um, that happened a couple times, and I was like, this is a this is a problem. Something's this never used to happen to me. Um, something's not right. It's on your your body's still on your flight schedule. <laughs> yeah, yes. Just many takeoffs and landings, and all right, give them the adrenaline and the racing heartbeat. We're about to take off. So yeah, so there we actually did a lot of Stephen did um, Stephen the guy I did the the trip with LRICs. Um, his whole academic career was based on combat veterans returning back to the states and what their bodies go through. So he got his PhD in that. Yeah, and, and uh, all the research he did, you know, really shows that when your body operates on that level level for years on end, always thinking you're going to die, right? And, and that much adrenaline run through your body, it doesn't just turn off. So when you go live a slower pace, your body is still used to operating at that tempo, so it'll still release adrenaline for no reason at all, because that's what it used to do to keep you alive. Uh, I had no idea, and that scared the shit out of me. And and then with that, you know, then you're getting mad, pissed off all the time, and uh, yeah, I had a I had a real problem coming back. Uh, Veteran suicide in this country is a major issue. Um, upwards of 22 veterans a day commit suicide every every day in this country and there are an awful lot of organizations that are working to try and mitigate and reduce that uh, reduce that risk of suicide among former service members and that wasn't any different for you Taylor at one point you had a very very bad day and you put a gun to your head and you pulled the trigger yeah I got there um not proud of it and it's still especially when you do these screenings you relive the most embarrassing moment of your life over and over again it sucks but um when i got there when i got that low dude i'm just i broke down in tears because I, I didn't want like john and kel and Adam, my buddies i was overseas with to, to feel that alone like they didn't there was no other way to live through this uh, yeah so that's so that's how LRIC started, and that's why we set off for uh, for Cape Horn to kind of document what was going on with my body and, uh, and what the, I was going the, through, and so they could see and, that they weren't alone. And a minor miracle happened um, when you pulled that trigger. The there was some sort of misfire, malfunction. The primer did not actuate that charge, and it did not put a bullet into your head. And you had a moment to pause and think about what you were going to do going forward after this sort of second chance was given to you um, by divine providence or by pure pure happenstance and luck because I assume you know how to take care of a weapon. It should have gone off, right? Yeah, you it should have. Some, something should have happened. So something saved you and you decided, okay, if I'm not going to die, I better get on with living. And you decided to buy a sailboat. You bought a Put twenty grand into a used sailboat, and decided you were going to sail around Cape Horn in it, which is like suicide by another means. As I've watched the original part of the diary, it's like, okay, hey, he's just going to kill himself a different way here, trying to do this. What What was it about Cape Horn that excited your imagination and made you say, "This is the quest I have to, I have to fulfill. I've got to go to the farthest end of South America between." between the devil and deep blue sea or so to find my find my life again tell me about that yeah um to bring it back a few steps i didn't i still after the round didn't go off i didn't i didn't give a shit about living i didn't care about being in this world anymore that didn't change so it wasn't it wasn't like a i need to start living now kind of thing and i wasn't happy i wasn't happy that i didn't go off it really wasn't genuinely and uh but i i, I wanted to make sure that that the guys didn't go through that that was the only thing that I came away from that with was I wanted to make sure nobody else ended up like that and felt that way because you feel pretty fucked alone um so um Steven's actually one who, who kept me alive man I can credit that to him for sure because I call him and talk about his research and um everything he'd seen with the combat vets he's he's interviewed coming back and he's like dude you're, everything you're saying is exactly what every single person I've ever interviewed has said what's happening in your body, where your mind's at. Um, I was like, what the, what the hell, dude? How come we don't know this? You know, How come this isn't common knowledge that this is what it's going to be like when you get out? All right. 
And so that's when the conversation started. It was like, well, let's use this and reach every guy getting out of the military. And um, that's when we kind of decided was um, the only way to do that this day and age is through, through media, through film. Um, so we decided to do something in this world that we could film and talk about PTSD and how to fix your body on a physiological level. And we're like, well, if we're going to film something, it's got to be pretty badass. And people are going to have to want to watch it if they're going to pay attention. And so we're like, well, let's see, they're going to be Mount Everest or Cape Horn. And we're like, well, Mount Everest, you know, you pay somebody to carry your stuff to the top of the mountain and you take a month off and go do it. Like, no. I think it's going to be Cape Horn. So we decided on Cape Horn and, um, yeah, then that's when I got the boat and, and fixed her up and cinematography um, started beautiful. filming. Yeah, the cinematography is beautiful. Some of the, the footage you captured of the wave action was just, I mean, my head was rocking. I felt myself like, you know, leaning into the, leaning into the, into the sea state there. Uh, your footage in Patagonia was beautiful. I was like, it looks like Norway, you know, like the, the glaciers and the fjords. I was like, God, it looks like Norway. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. But you had, on this journey, it took you, it was over a year, wasn't it? Yeah, just almost two years. Yeah. And we left this in 2017, big, got back in 2019. And this was the biggest boat you had ever sailed. About yeah, I guess that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, those of you are, those of you who are listening, you have what amounts to a novice sailor taking a fiberglass bottom boat. And normally you would want it to meet a steel rocks and wave action that's it'll batter a boat like that to to pieces. Nice. And he sailed it. And you sailed it six thousand miles. Is that about the about the mileage? Six thousand. Just under ten thousand. Just under ten thousand miles through probably what is the most treacherous passage of water in the entire world. And I, I got to tell you, it's an amazing feat. I, I I wonder if you still understand just what an incredible thing it was that you guys actually pulled off. Because I watched the documentaries, like I don't think they understand what they just did. They just sailed ten thousand miles on a rich cracker around, <laughs> yeah, around Cape Horn and lived. It's absolutely amazing. I, I, I kept thinking, watching in the documentary, folks, is um, Hell or High Seas, and we're going to arrange for a screening for some of our members. For you guys to watch this, um, and we're, we're, I've been working with your people on this. We're going to arrange for a screening. He, uh, Taylor's also got a veterans organization where he is wanting to take veterans coming back out of the military and, and help them in their transition back to civilian life by adventure therapy, um, by sailing. And also, I think there's a sense of crew that, that you miss when you get out of the military very close relationships among the guys we serve with. And when, when you're cut off from them, you're cut off from them. It's like when you step off, you step outside the veil again, you're a civilian, they're still in. And there's a divide there. And yeah. it's, a, it's a weird feeling. Um, uh, so having that sort of crew of guys to, of, who are veterans to reassociate with and, and rebuild yourself around your tribe, so to speak, I think it's a very important part of that veterans transition. So I can see what you're doing is, is going to be um, very helpful to guys. So we'll be looking to raise a modest sum of money to help his, to help his organization. You also have a line of tequila out um, that you guys are doing, which I'm surprised it isn't rum, given your sailors. It really should be, it should be rum. Yeah. Um, tell us the name of the tequila and where people can get it. Yeah, it's called Cape Horn Tequila. And uh, it's not on the shelf yet, so my bottles are stuck in that traffic jam off California. Uh, oh. So we'll look, yeah, December 10th is our day. It's supposed to be November 1st, but we got pushed back a month before we get bottles here. Um, and you're using the proceeds of that to, to fund the program? Hell yeah, man. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things on our expedition was um, was keeping it going. So we had a lot of we had a couple of sponsors um, that were out there, kind of left us high and dry, and we were in a bad spot. So when we were down around Cape Horn, you know, another one of those moments, you know, when you're flying and you think you're going to die. Um, we were on a boat, and we were all were pretty sure we were going to die. And we were like, well, if we make it back alive, what are you going to do? And mine was, was to keep these going and, and start a company to do that. Um, and so that's Cape Horn Tequila and funds our veteran expeditions once we get them on the shelves. You guys have to, really, you've got to watch this documentary because I'm a sailor myself. I, I began sailing in middle school in Miami, Coconut Grove, and crewed on a boat that sailed in the, in the Bahama Islands for 
well, gosh, I just three different summers I spent out there. And there were some moments of your journey there where I thought, I know they're not going to die, but they really should die because they're doing something that is like super dangerous. You had a jib boom break for you. You had to ascend the mast in a bosun's chair in a high sea state adding about 180 pounds of top weight to the top of your mast while you were securing that jib boom. And I was like, okay, this is dangerous. You got thrown, you guys got thrown overboard at one yeah. point where, a, where the nose dived into a wave. You, you and your, the other SARS swimmer, you guys were out there. There's two SARS swimmers, you know, in that movie. I was like, oh my God, there's like more yeah. equipment than I've seen. <laughs> and you guys got washed off the boat. Yeah. Uh, at one point, I think you were trying to secure the jib or something, which your mainsail. Yeah, we tried to pull the main down for that storm. And you guys pulled yourself back in. You had a harrowing experience with pirates in the middle of the night where a, 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 a storm basically rolled over you. The clouds covered the moon. And, I mean, there's some, like, great stuff in this that you had this incredible – I mean, the only thing that didn't happen is you didn't get run over by a tanker. I know. It was like – It was like – <laughs> We had a couple of those close calls. You had the Humboldt Kurt drag you 700 miles out into the Pacific uh, off of Chile. And I was like, that's a long way to be in that boat. Because what was that? What was the boat? 38 feet. 36 feet. 36 feet. And mm -hmm. in the video, dude, it just looks like a bathtub on those waves. I mean, it is such a spec. The drone footage you guys had was great. Because um, I was like, this guy be drone footage. They have a drone. They're flying. On their yeah. You guys run out of food. You run out of water. Um you got a, you had a, you did a GoFundMe when you were basically stranded, and, and gosh, you raised your goal in like a week. People threw the money, people were at you there to help you get, you know, to keep you going. It was really, it was really an incredible um, outpouring of of support from Dude, people yeah. watching you on the journey. A lot of active duty guys uh, contributed to that, and then a lot of our community in San Antonio and um, College Station. And uh, and WellMed, WellMed's this healthcare group. They they're one of our big sponsors as well. Um, it's uh, that was one of the coolest moments of the trip. Was seeing everybody kind of come together and, and realize that this needed to be done, needed to be talked about. You have a PT. There. You have a PTSD diagnosis. Um, I'm assuming with the VA. Yep. I'm assuming you probably also have some disability uh, because of your back, also with the VA. Yep. Do you want to talk about that a little bit about dealing with the VA and how that experience has been? Any Anything you can tell people about lessons learned about things that they could? Uh, I don't really have anything good to say about the VA if you're looking for that. <laughs> no. I, no but. <laughs> that was part of the problem, man. Whenever I got to Pensacola um, and I started going through all this and I had a problem, I went to the VA and I checked in and uh, saw a psychiatrist and um, diagnosed me and said, well, the next time we can get you in is in four to six months. And I was like, I've told her in that moment, I was like, what the hell am I going to do myself in four or six months? For real. Well, what's going to happen? You know? Um, so I left, dude. I uh, got out of there and VA is not going to help. You know, we got to do this ourselves. Um, and, and kind of not related, but that's kind of what I think. When you see all these nonprofits popping up uh, to stop veteran suicide, PTSD, it's not because they want to, dude. It's because there's a need. It's because guys are killing themselves and nothing's being done because there's a six-month wait at the VA to get help. Uh, yeah. I think that says it in itself, how, how much the VA is lacking. And I don't think it's the people that work there. The people that I've worked, that I've worked with are awesome, are great. You're so overwhelmed, man. They've got, there's 19 million veterans in the States. How many VA stations are there? It's ridiculous. It's like so, 1,100. There's like 1,100 facilities around the country, and they don't seem to be able to see anybody, which is right. like, how, how, what are they doing? I still, I have that in Houston, dude. It's one of the big ones. I went to Houston, right. like for my back, for instance. I went, to, I know we're just bitching out. I hate doing this, but I think guys, no, no. when they get out. You know, it's informative. Uh, it really is. So I went to get an MRA um, at the DeBakey down in downtown Houston. And they said, okay, you can come up in three months. We'll have an opening for you. Okay, so so I don't I don't want to go already, right? Samantha um, is telling me, she's like, you need to go. You need to go get it. Samantha's at, your wife. Samantha's yeah. your wife. Yeah, sorry. And, um, you know, she's, she's the one pushing me to go to the VA. I don't want to work with the VA because it's always been a negative experience. So I'm like, okay, fine. All right, I'll, I'll go get it set up. I'll go go through the process. They're like, okay, three months, we got you. The day comes, dude. Well, it was the day before I was supposed to go. I get a letter in the mail that says my appointment's canceled for no reason. Like, it just says my appointment's canceled. I've been waiting for three months for this thing. 
Um, there was no explanation or anything, so I haven't I haven't tried again since then. Um, it's it's a mess. So that's why I'm I'm pretty adamant on doing this ourselves and taking care of guys ourselves. I think it needs to be done because there's a lot of guys like that that are just getting pushed under and not getting any help. There's a side of me that thinks that veterans are the guys who should be doing that. Because, Hell yeah. Because we have an insight into this that's that's very different than the, especially when you've experienced. I got to make a confession, and we talked about this a bit before the break, but when I was in the military, PTSD existed, and, and we did not um, acknowledge it for what it was. And it was downplayed. You were living in a culture in which you just couldn't say no to things. You didn't show any fear. You didn't balk at anything. You charged straight ahead. And whatever the challenge was, you went after it. And if yeah. somebody if somebody got a little um, a wobble, as we used to say, um, we looked at that as being, oh, well, the guy just can't hack. And yeah, you're the weak one. That's, that's still a problem today. And yep. It's not about weakness. It's about um, – and then I told you, I – I had nightmares for a couple of months after I got it. It was a recurring nightmare, the aircraft crashing in the water, and I couldn't get out, and I would wake up. I never knew that to be what I thought it was. I mean, I never knew what it was. I just knew I'd had these nightmares, and I didn't. You shuffle them and drink a little harder, ride your motorcycle a little faster, and hope it doesn't come back. And then it did. It subsided. And then about 20 years later, somebody sent me a video of very, very hard landing of a helicopter in bad weather, and I had a full-blown cold sweat, heart racing, shortness of breath, thought I was having a heart attack and didn't know what it was and then realized what it was. I was having a, a flashback to that experience. My body was reacting to the video right. as if I was going through the experience again. And it was very disorienting for about two minutes while I thought, what is happening? And yeah. uh, the way I got through was I kept watching the video over and over and over to sort of like make it go away. And I would, uh, each time the symptoms would, get lower and lower and lower to where I can watch it now without this lump in my chest and and this fear because you do you feel it I, I could feel myself in that aircraft trying to make that landing and thinking you're gonna die this is not gonna go well and they're filming it so you're gonna die and it's gonna be a movie um and and now I have a different appreciation for for PTSD but there is a culture it's not just in it's not just in civil society where people don't understand. A lot of times in the military, we don't understand it either. We we see it right in front of us, and and we don't we don't react properly to it. We don't get these guys help and treatment. Um, yeah. I want to go into something else here because I, you know, standing on the outside as a spectator in your life, public life. Now you have a very public life. The the movie Hell or High Water is brutally honest. I mean. You're not holding anything back. It, it's very, very personal and uh, even intimate. I feel like I know you, even though I don't. Um, but I do know what it's like to be you in the context of being a rescuer. And getting out of the Navy is, is a journey from military service back to civilian life. And as I watched that movie in the aftermath of what happened, I, I see you like going from, I'm going to, drink this bottle of tequila and shoot myself to uh, I've sailed the Horn of Africa. I have a successful uh, foundation to help other veterans. I'm married. I have a two year old daughter. Uh, dude, you, you've, you've made the journey. You're, you're back. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're back? Uh, I, I want to live in this world again, for sure. I still have my days. That's, that's, uh, that's, I don't think that's going to go away, but I know, that this world's worth living in again and i learned that on the trip and that's why i started the sailing foundation because i want other guys to see that but uh when you live in those storms and then you see a sunrise come out or you go hike some glacier that nobody's ever seen before in their life um it makes you want to live it makes you want to be a part of this world again i found that out there so well, well now you get that now you get that two-year-old man right and to her you are the world you know <laughs> You are oh, the girl. world. Yeah, no. No, I got to say, I, I, know, I gotta say this. So much of the coverage of post-traumatic stress disorder and veterans' issues is about the guys who die. And, but I think there needs to be more emphasis placed on the guys who live, the guys who walk up to the edge of that cliff and decide not to step out of it, turn their lives around, 
and get on with living and make the best of their lives. And I think given the challenges and struggles that, that you've dealt with, I, I wish I could shake your hand and give you a hug. I said, cause you, you've, you're doing it, man. You, you step back away and you, you're on the right, you're back on course again, right? You're out, of those, the, you're out of that doldrum and you've got a life yeah. with purpose and meaning. you got wind in your sails again and you got a sense of direction and purpose back in your life. And so many guys don't get that. And you see them, you know, sitting in their garage, just drinking beer and not living. And you're out there getting after it. And, you know, from, from one sort to another, man, I'm just like, you're doing a good thing. You're doing great. And I'm proud of, I'm, I'm proud of what you've been able to do and what you've been able to accomplish. And I think there's more there for you. I think there's more coming from you. Um, we, I'll get you a link to High Mountain Heroes. We did a documentary on Put Guys in the Alps, very similar to the same kind of experiences for the same reasons, you know, about reconnecting to living again yeah. uh, through through nature. So um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know your daughter's napping. She's going to pop any minute and start yeah. sounding <laughs> off. I just want to say what a pleasure it's been to um, to talk with you today. And I hope our I hope our readers come away with a better understanding of who you are and issues related to PTSD and how to come back from that and how to rearrange your life, find that redirected purpose towards living. Uh, don't be one of those 22, be one of the tens of thousands like Taylor, who's, who's back on course again and sailing into a nice, into a nice southerly tack. Um, I want us to stay in touch. I want us to stay in touch. And um, you have an open invitation from me as editor in chief. If you want to write anything for us, we'd be, we'd be happy to publish it. Wow, right on, man, yeah. We'll and definitely we'll talk when you come to Houston, right? Yeah, I will. I, I have your email and your, and your cell phone. Um, I'll, um, I've got your stuff. I'll make sure you get a free um, hookup with software um, as well so that you can, you can be I'll wear it on the boat. Yeah, and uh, when that tequila arrives, let us know how we can you know, get a bottle or two. If I get one for me, I want you, I want you to sign it for me. Oh, definitely. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be a trophy edition. Definitely, most definitely. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to conclude the broadcast today. This is Software Radio. I am your stand-in host, Sean Spence, editor-in-chief of Software. And on behalf of all of us here, uh, we just want to thank Taylor again for coming. His fine movie, um, Hell or High Water, Hell is available. Seas. I'm sorry, Hell or High Seas. Come Hell or High Water is the phrase. <laughs> yeah. you know. Hell yep. or High Seas, uh, there's a website, hellorhighseas.com. It's a beautiful movie. You really have to see this. Um, and watch this, watch this very personal journey of a veteran coming out of a military service and reconnecting back with his life and, and his humanity, which is the other thing I think you, you really found out there, too, is your sense of humanity. Yeah. So congratulations on your fine film and your progress here coming out of the services, your transition back to civilian life, your beautiful family. And uh, I can't wait till we get a chance to talk again. You're welcome yeah. here anytime. Me too, man. This was great. Great chat. Thank you for having me. It's really cool. Thank you. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.